World Shapers, conversations with science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. I'm your host, Edward Willows, and this episode's guest, Ado Van Belkum. Welcome to another episode of The World Shapers, the podcast where I talk to other science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. My name is Edward Willett. I am myself an author of science fiction and fantasy. My most recent novel is The Tangled Stars, which was my 12th novel for Daw Books. It came out uh, back in November. It's available in an ebook and audiobook, so please go and look for that. I'm currently working on a nonfiction book, which will uh, compile some of the uh, Interesting things I've discovered doing this podcast, drawing on the interviews with my Canadian author specifically. And today I have another Canadian author uh, who will be part of that uh, potentially. Uh, so look for that uh, sometime. <laughs> I'm still writing it, so I don't know exactly when. I'm also a publisher. My publishing company is, is called, well, I have two, but uh, one is called Shadowpaw Press. That's a traditional publishing company, and I publish many things through there. But uh, among the things that I publish are science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and I have a couple of uh, new titles that will be coming out in 2024. One is called The Good Soldier by Anir Yaniv, and uh, the other is a YA uh, science fiction novel called The Headmasters by Mark Morton. Uh, so those are in the process of uh, coming together. I'm currently also editing uh, the stories for uh, Volume 4 of the Shapers of Worlds anthology series. Each uh, one of those volumes features science fiction and fantasy by authors who are guests on this very podcast and I kick-started all four of them the fourth one this spring I'm editing stories now and uh, looking forward to bringing that to fruition uh, the commercial release will probably also be in January because Shadowpaw Press is now part of uh, uh, the lit distco distribution uh, system and they have a sales force and the sales force uh, tends to work in seasons whereas as a print-on-demand publisher I could publish whenever I was ready um, so I'm trading off uh, much more discoverability and promotion uh, for some flexibility, but uh, probably in January for the uh, commercial release of Shapers of Worlds Volume 4, Kickstarter backers uh, should get it this fall. And of course, the previous three novels are uh, collections, anthologies, are widely available if you want to uh, go take a look, or you can go to Shadowpaw Press's website, shadowpawpress.com. I also want to mention Endless Sky Books. Uh, Endless Sky Books is my publishing services company, and some books that come to me through Endless Sky are published under the Endless Sky imprint, which for distribution purposes is an imprint of a Shadowpaw Press. So I have uh, the Disco distribution for titles that I publish through Endless Sky as well. Endless Sky, however, is different in that it's not a traditional royalty-paying publisher. It is uh, publishing services, so I will do editing or layout or or do the whole uh, schmozzle <laughs> and uh, and publish the book. And as I said, some selected titles uh, then are, are published under the Indusky imprint um, and distributed also through the Shadowpaw Press uh, distribution network. So if you have a book that you'd like to get out and uh, you are interested in uh, using kind of a hybrid model where you pay me up front and you get a much higher share of uh, royalties after that, uh, please check out Endless Sky Books at endless-sky-books.com. Or if you just need editing services, I certainly provide that as well. I've also done ebook conversions and some cover design. I'm not an artist, but uh, I can do cover design if the images are available. So um, 
yeah, check that out as well if you if you need any help with that sort of thing. I just came back from NASFIC, the North American Science Fiction Convention in Winnipeg. I had a couple of panels, one on editors are people too, and one on science fiction poetry of all things, and an autograph session and reading and that sort of stuff. Uh, sold quite a few books there, actually, although it wasn't a very big dealer's room. Uh, the Imaginative Fiction Writers Association from Calgary had a joint author's table there, and I had several books on that table and was quite uh, quite happy with it. And in just, uh, what, a week from Wednesday, I guess, heading to Calgary for When Words Collide, which is a wonderful uh, literary conference, multi-genre literary conference uh, that I've gone to for many, many years. And I was guest of honor last year. Wasn't able to go last year because it was still virtual, but this year they're in person and they're bringing back uh, some of the guests of honor who weren't able to attend in person as special guests. So I'll be a special guest at that. Tanya Huff, who is one of the guests of honor at uh, NASVIC in Winnipeg, will also be one of the guests of honor in Calgary. And she was one of my early uh, authors, uh, one of the first three authors that I interviewed on this podcast. So uh, looking forward to that as well. All right. That kind of catches you up to where I am in the whole publishing world and writing world. Uh, so let's get on and talk about uh, talk to this episode's guest, Edo Van Belkum. Edo Van Belkum is an award-winning Canadian writer of horror. He began his career as a reporter for newspapers in and around Toronto, where he mainly covered crime and sports. His first sale as an author of fiction was a short story called Baseball Memories in 1990 which earned him his first Aurora Award nomination and was published in both the year's Best Horror Stories, edited by Carl Edward, Edward Wagner, and the Grand Slam Book of Canadian Baseball Writing. Not too many stories I would think would fall into both of those. In 2005, Ido won an Aurora Award for his uh, young adult horror novel, Wolfpack, and the novel was subsequently awarded the Silver Birch Award from the Ontario Library Association after participating students in grades 4, 5, and 6 voted Wolfpack as their favorite novel for 2006. And Wolfpack is now being turned into a drama series by Paramount+. Plus. In addition to his genre writing, Ida was described by the Vancouver Sun as one of Canada's leading writers of erotica under the pen name Evan Hollander. So, Ido, welcome to the World Shapers. Um, I'm happy to be here and uh, look forward to this. I just want to clarify one thing. My first name is pronounced Edo. Oh, I should have asked. Uh, I used to say like, <laughs> that's okay. I used to say it was like Laredo, like the town in Texas. But I've come to say it's like potato, Edo potato. It's what I was called when I was in elementary school. And I hated it then. But now I use it. Uh, where the pronunciation means, and uh, people seem to get a kick out of it. So, Edo Potato. Well, when I was growing up, uh, I can always tell people who knew me younger because they call me Eddie as opposed to Ed or Edward. And unfortunately, what that meant was that in high school, I picked up the nickname Sweaty Eddie because it rhymed. So, you know, nicknames can be <laughs> can be problematic when you're a kid. Um, and also, we I always look for things we have in common. And I also started as a newspaper reporter, not in and around Toronto. I was in and around Weyburn, Saskatchewan at the Weyburn Review. But my background is in journalism. And uh, I also covered sports. Uh, not And, well, I covered everything because it was a small paper. But, but for a while, I was their sports reporter, which was funny because that's not really my thing. <laughs> that's kind of what I was hired well, for. Well, <laughs> small town uh, newspaper reporters do everything. I was, for much of it time I was a typist it seemed anyway <laughs> but uh, yeah did about everything just about everything and it's one of the things that helped uh, as a writer a professional writer because <clears throat> you had to spend so much time writing and producing copy and 
it was all being published and you know he had to get on to the next one write a we used to call them 12 inch stories with a picture and that was like quarter of a page like how many did you do of those this week and you know like oh i did about five or six and that was the measure of whether you were productive or not so yeah i always tell people that it was great training because the paper comes out whether you've written anything or not so you better write something so that's there's no room yeah. for it oh I'm, i don't feel like writing you just have to do it it also ties into that idea of the 10,000 hours. Um, I probably did more than 10,000 hours during my time there, but uh, it was a very good uh, <clears throat> indoctrination, just uh, writing, and writing quickly and cleanly, uh, very important, you know, because sure, an editor was going to look it over, but he was, you know, had a million other tasks. So quite often, if you weren't careful, something some mistake would make it into the paper and quite embarrassing. So you had to make sure it was quick and fast, quick and clean. Yes, I had a few embarrassing mistakes that made it into the paper in, my, in those early years. Well, let's back up just a little bit more than that. Um, I presume you were sure. you also grew up in Ontario. So where were you born and grew up in education and all that good stuff? And how did you how did the uh, writing in, start and all of that? Sure. I grew up in Toronto. Now, not downtown Toronto proper but in an area called Downsview, in the Keel and Wilson area, which uh, were all uh, Italians, Italian immigrants. They moved there uh, originally. My mother was Italian, my father Dutch. I went to uh, you know Catholic school, and it was funny, I'm half Italian, but because of my name, Van Belkem is Dutch, even though Edo is both Italian and Dutch. I was never truly accepted into that group because I wasn't 100% Italian. It's strange to think that now in Canada is so multicultural, but <clears throat> there was some of that going on. And then the Italian groups that went to uh, other parts, more like Woodbridge and Vaughan, and also went to high school in the same area, St. Basil's College, a fancy name for a high school. And then uh, attended York University in the creative writing program, which I have an honors degree in creative writing. I don't mention that too much. And I worked when I was there on the uh, student newspaper. And that was my real education because when I finished, I had a degree in creative writing, but I had an ability to be a newspaper reporter. So that was the more valuable <laughs> thing I did when I was at uh, school. But... Uh, yeah, I have a degree in creative writing, and it turned out that I actually used it because I, had, I ended up writing fiction and, and creatively, so it wasn't all wasted. Did you start writing when you were young? And also, were you a big reader? Because most of us who go into this field obviously started as readers before we became writers. I was reading when I was uh, younger, um, but I hadn't found... Um, any fiction that I enjoyed. I was reading a lot of nonfiction. I was a big World War II uh, buff and uh, military aviation. So I did a lot of reading of that, which confounded my brother. He couldn't believe I was reading these tomes about, you know, the, the defeat in the West and what happened to the German army and things like that when I was like 12 years old. Um, but I was reading and I knew I wanted to write something. I wasn't quite sure. So uh, I experimented with all kinds of things. Uh, poetry, which was really bad. Mm -hmm. A friend and I got together when we uh, started writing rock songs. 
but we use the word baby too many times in <laughs> every song. Baby, baby, baby. And uh, it was fun, but they were pretty, pretty bad. And the uh, moment came when I was reading The October Country by Ray Bradbury, my favorite book of all time. And I'd read all of those stories, one after another. And at the end of each story, it was like, wow, that was great. And I would read the next one and say, that was terrific. And I really enjoyed it. Read it all in one sitting. And when I came to the end of the book, I said, that's the kind of writer I want to be. I want to write those kinds of stories. And when people finish them, they're going to say, wow, that was terrific. Now, that's a quite a lofty goal. And I knew for the first time in my life, if I wanted to achieve something, I would have to work very hard at it because I hadn't worked very hard at anything up until then. You know, kind of breezed through high school, doing just enough to keep a decent average and everybody happy. Ironically, the parent, the teachers are always told my parents that he could do more. He was capable of more. I said, no, I don't think so. But clearly I was. <laughs> and I was just doing enough to get by. But when I wanted to be a fiction writer, I knew that there are tens of thousands of people out there who want the same thing. And the way to achieve it is to work harder at your craft and the whole thing than anyone else. So that's when I started reading fiction solely. And I would have um, cargo pants with two paperbacks in a paperback in each pocket. And I would read a, a moment's free time, pull it out, start reading. You know, they say uh, aspiring writers, they only are interested in reading their own work. But um, I kind of worked it out that, you know, you have to read everything across the, the spectrum, even bad stuff. So when you can recognize it when you're doing it yourself. So and then I was reading, you know, I was reading hundreds of books a year. And um, all then I started writing also uh, at a good clip too. So the reading, writing, hard work, all of that came together and eventually started to publish a story here and there and then it became more regular did the writing kick in while you before you decided to take the creative writing uh, course um i knew i wanted to write i was terrible though i wasn't even very good in my class but i did get an a in one fiction writing class from Catherine gouvier canadian author and um I don't know what I did in that class to merit that, but she saw something, and uh, I've I've talked to her a couple of times since then. She remembers me, which is nice. But I knew I wanted to write something, and I thought I wanted to be a science fiction writer, like kind of Ray Bradbury. But turned out that I didn't have the uh, the mind for it. I mean, you need to base your stuff truly on science, and uh, I wasn't doing that. That's how I ended up doing fantasy and horror stuff because I realized that I was best suited to write about the present day with only a hint or a tinge of fantasy to it. And uh, once I learned that, that's when I started writing some mild fantasy and horror. And the thing about that is once you identify something that you're good at, you enjoy doing it, you get better at it, and the better at it, you get at it, the more you enjoy doing it and the more you do it. And this is a cycle like that. And that's how I fell into, you know, the genre that I ended up doing. Well, and your first story was baseball memories. Uh, <clears throat> had, 
That's your Correct. first published story. How many uh, yes. unpublished stories were there before you got to that point? Um, I think there was like six or 12 or something like that. Um, when did you graduate from university? 80, uh, 81, 82, yeah. I would have been about 83, 84 maybe, yeah. Um, I think I, I wrote about six or ten stories, and that was the first one that was published. They all eventually got published because I worked on them again and again and again. But uh, that was the first one. And I thought it was a science fiction story. It's about a, a man who loves baseball trivia, and he studies it constantly, continuously. And then his brain is so full of this trivia that he has no more room for it, that there's no more room in his mind for it. So uh, his brain decides, well, if these are so important, we're getting them daily at such levels, we have to make room for it. So it clears out all the other memories he has to make room for baseball statistics. Mm -hmm. So he wakes up and he can't remember a thing other than baseball. And it has a science fiction uh, concept to it, but it didn't do well at the science magazine. So I, it ended up being published at Athlon, East Tennessee State University. They have a, a journal of sports literature and it was picked up for that. And then I sent it to Carl Edward Wagner and he selected it for year's best horror stories 20. So it was like, you know, you see baseball players hitting a home run their first at bat. And that's what I did, kind of. Um, but it was years till uh, something like that happened again. It was very fortunate for, on my part that that happened. And it's a great uh, starting point, but it's a hard thing to live up to, right? First story out of the gate, year's best. Took a took a while to do that again. Going back to your creative writing degree, had, have you found that what you learned studying creative writing formally has been helpful? I, I ask that question, and not everybody says it is. So that's why. What I, I learned. Well, I'm going to tell you, I learned pretty much zero in creative writing class. It the the program was great, but the Classes were taught, by and large, by people who were academics in English literature and had a love for English literature, but really knew nothing about the nuts and bolts and mechanics of writing. I mean, we didn't have a class and, okay, we're doing exercises on point of view. We're going to do action. We're going to do opening structure. We're going to do how to fashion dialogue, anything like that. It was all of more of how you be inspired or the muse or it took me years to figure out what point of view meant and what it was. I have a grasp of it now, but I was flailing around like I don't understand and no one was explaining it to me. And um, so that's why I decided I better go to the newspaper and find out and learn how to be, write uh, newspaper stories because there's no way I'm going to graduate with a creative writing degree and start making a living <laughs> writing creative uh, fiction or anything else. So the th thing that I really learned from is I joined a group of writers called the Cecil Street Irregulars. We met at the Cecil Street Community Center in uh, Toronto off Spadina and there was about five or six uh, of us 
David Nickel, Carl Schrader, Michael Skeet, Hugh Spencer, Corey Doctorow came later. I wasn't there when he came. Um, and we uh, met and uh, submitted stories to the group about two a week. And we would sit around and critique them. And then you could go back with all your notes and make it better. And I did that for two years. And I brought in a lot of stories. And I got a lot of practice critiquing fiction and other people's stories. This doesn't work because... And then you realize what's not working in your fiction because you learn to identify it. And then you start not to make those mistakes when you're writing. And at the end of those two, two and a half years, <clears throat> I wasn't making those mistakes anymore. And I was writing stuff that was of professional quality. And so then I decided I've had enough. I'm, this isn't helping me anymore. It's time to leave the group and start working to sell fiction. And that's where I really learned the nuts and bolts of fiction writing. Not through university, but through trial and error and just doing it week after week after week. And then you also mentioned the writing. See, in my case, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I also knew you couldn't make a living as a writer. Uh, so I decided to go into journalism to begin with, with the idea that I would write, write for a newspaper and at least I would be writing. And I did find it helpful yes. in many ways, as we talked about a little bit. Um, one of the other things I found helpful was just the talking to people and just exposing yourself to so many different things as a, as a newspaper reporter, especially your writing stuff that's mostly said in the present day. Was that all helpful for you as you went into your fiction writing? Well, the thing about doing these articles, you'd be sent to some place and you'd be, one day you'd be interviewing a, you know, a 10-year-old who just did a gymnastics, won some gymnastics contest. And then you'd be going and, and interviewing, you know, some middle-aged person. And you had to be interested in everything they were talking about. And you had to ask questions that brought out the information you needed and, you had to make friends with them and you had to, you know, capture their story and as quickly as possible because, you know, you didn't have all day to spend like some magazine writer might have. So you had to learn to do these things quickly, find what the story is, you know, find the interesting part about it and uh, continue on like that. So, yeah, it was good. I was writing and I was happy for that. That was at first it was enough. But I had aspirations for more. And while I was writing for the newspaper, that's when I started writing the fiction as well. Because I wanted to, I always wanted to write stories. And I had that aspiration to be like Ray Bradbury. So it wasn't going to happen writing sports for a local uh, daily newspaper. So I had to stretch, stretch out and aspire to more. As you moved into fiction writing, did you start with short stories and then move to novels, or was there a novel that you worked on very early on as well? I uh, was doing short stories. I love, even today, to this day, I love writing short stories more. Um, there's just something about the, the quickness, directness, the, the challenge of telling the story in a short amount of space, you know, uh, I read plenty of I've read plenty of novels that, uh, by people who would never write a short story. You know, in a novel you can diverge and and spend thirty pages on some small aspect and then get back to it. And some people love reading that kind of thing. 
a friend of mine here um, loves reading books and he won't take any book that's less than, you know, 400 pages. He just loves those sprawling kind of stories. It's never for me. I, I love the 1500 word, 3000 word story. You know, when I read Stephen King, the first uh, collection, I think it was uh, Skeleton Crew. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. I love I loved those stories. Man, he could do it, you know, in 5,000, 6,000 words. He's a little wordier than I am even, but he could still do a great story in a short period of time, and that's what I aspired to. And His novels can oversprawl. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, the uh, example is... Um, is it Salem's Lot? Yeah. No. The one um, that they reissued with like 300 pages that were put back in. Oh. Um, I think it's Salem's Lot. It, that sounds right. I can't be 100% sure. But. Um, anyway, the, the thing is, like when he was starting out, an editor looked at that book and pulled out all of those pages and made it the success. I think it's a little self-indulgent to say no no here's all the stuff they took out i mean they took it out when he wasn't a big star and they put it back in when he was but um we're talking about his short fiction which you know it's just great and that's what i aspired to and if you when i started writing novels i had trouble you know getting to that 300 you know 90,000 word uh, mark and people say when they read my novels that they they're quick and they're quick reads but that's because i wrote the same way for a novel that i would in a short story and i don't waste a lot of time on things to my detriment maybe i should have spent more time on character or atmosphere or you know backstory or things like that but it is what it is and um, as far as short stories go there's about 10 or 20 that are just in my mind perfect course i'm the author i'm biased but you know out of 250 stories and you say 10 or 20 are perfect i don't think that's uh bragging i think it's probably um you know the right number have you ever collected those 10 or 20 perfect ones into a collection yeah my uh, first collection death drives a semi um was published by quarry press and it had almost 20 stories and it had um, 18 or 19 and it has the uh, Stoker winning story uh, rat food it's got baseball memories in it it's got uh, a story called the rug which was a Stoker finalist and uh, a bunch of other stories that I'm all really proud of and uh, come closest to emulating Ray Bradbury in the October country which is the whole reason I started out writing so that book is the one I'm most proud of it. That's my October country. And see, I did it. You know, I achieved that thing that I wanted for so long. There was also another collection of short, uh, short stories, erotic horror stories called Six Inch Spikes. And um, that has uh, fewer stories because there's one uh, novella in there. But uh, also, I'm, I'm proud of that one too. And people reading that would think I'm crazy or depraved one or the other, but I'm quite proud of that. And as, as far as I forgot to mention, Death Drives a Semi, it's going to be reprinted this year in October. 
uh, 25th anniversary edition, which I'm quite pleased with. The introduction by Rob Sawyer has been updated. I did uh, story notes for each of the stories, and we added a, uh, a bonus story for this edition. So I'm quite uh, pleased by that. And who knows, if that one's successful, I might shop around in uh, a brand new collection because I have plenty of uh, other stories that could be collected. It just kind of faded away uh, some years ago from working on that kind of stuff. But uh, with all this renewed interest in things, who knows, maybe we'll do another brand new collection if there's some interest. I mean, it's possible these days to do a book and even intending only to sell 100 copies, you know. Print on demand has allowed these kind of things to be feasible. So I might uh, try another collection. Uh, it's fun to see uh, your stuff go into print. And so on Facebook, I've been going over all my books and each day writing a little story about how each one was created and the publishing history behind it. And it's been a lot of fun. And what I found is there's a lot of people who enjoyed those books that I never heard from before. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's something there. Maybe we could do some new book and that'll be fun to do. Well, let's uh, talk about your creative process for writing novels specifically, although short stories as well. And I guess the one we'll talk about is Wolfpack. So, um, sure. Because that's getting all this renewed interest right now. Where did that fall? Was that your first novel or had you had others before that? No. Uh, as far as novels go, I wrote, my first novel was called Wormwolf, which was about werewolves, but had nothing to do with that. I did four uh, gaming tie-in novels to start my career. Wormwolf was set in the world of darkness and the, uh, specifically the werewolf apocalypse game. Then I did a novel called Lord Soth in the Dragonlance realm. And then from there, I did an, another World of Darkness book in something called Mage the Ascension. And that was called Mr. Magic. And I did a book, another book for a TSR at the time called Dragon Dice, which, no, called Army of the Dead, which was set in the Dragon Dice uh, board game. Uh, and I did those four, and then I did um, two novels uh, for smaller publishers, one called Martyrs and another one called Teeth. And then I did two mass market paperbacks, one called Scream Queen and the other Blood Road. And we're not, we might not get into this further, but I also did three full-length novels for the Canadian government, Natural Resources Canada, hmm. which... Uh, there's an interesting story if you're interested in hearing it. Sure. How did that okay. come about? <laughs> so I start, yeah, uh, it's, it's a longish story, but it's, it's really interesting. When Death Drives a Semi came out, I was looking for places to promote the book. So I found a magazine called Truck News. and thought, oh, man, this is perfect. They can do a little three-inch thing about Death Drives a Semi come out, coming out because there was three stories in there that had to do with trucks and trucking. So I looked in the staff box of this uh, magazine, and lo and behold, John G. Smith was the editor who I'd, I'd worked with as a reporter at the Brampton Times. So I got in touch with him, and he was all interested, and he wanted maybe to reprint 
um, one or two of the stories that had to do with trucks. But the stories were not trucking industry positive. Those were his words. <laughs> and he asked if I could write something that was trucking industry positive. So I came up with a former private investigator turned trucker who can't keep his nose out of other people's business and uh, goes on the, uh, the open road and he comes across all kinds of adventures. And that turned out to last for 15 years. And I wrote 55 stories in the, for the magazine, which ran continuously. Every month there was a chapter. Wow. Every three months was a story. Three or four months was a full story. And that went continuously for 15 years. And in the early part of that, a woman from Natural Resources Canada realized how popular the character and the stories were. And she asked me if I could write a novel featuring the character that would incorporate all of the information they had in this one-day workshop teaching drivers fuel-efficient driving practices. <laughs> so the idea was all of the information would be in the book with a story that ran from Newfoundland to BC, and they could read it and learn it from reading the book instead of coming off the road and spending a day in a classroom and not working. So I did it, and it was a big success. In fact, I think it's still being used on course curriculum in some truck driving schools. And they sent me all over Canada at truck shows, signing copies of the book. It was translated into French, did audio books for it, and just giving it away. And I ended up doing a second book where the characters go into the United States, and a third book where they go up on the ice roads in the Northwest hmm. Territories. So those were the three novels I did for the Canadian government, which I don't think any other author can make that claim. <laughs> no. And I also did two novels in the Harlequin Gold Eagle Deathlands series under the name James Axler, which was the name they used for the series. So I did those novels too. And then I started with uh, the Wolfpack uh, novels for young adults. Well, let's... So <laughs> By the time I got there, you know, to the Wolfpack uh, thing, I'd probably done 15, 16 novels by then. Well, let's uh, start by getting a bit of a synopsis for Wolfpack without giving anything away, I guess. Um, okay. It's been out for a long time, but still. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, published in 2004, the first book. The last book, there's four books in the series. The last book was something like 2010. So it's basically, um, it starts in a wildfire. There's a forest ranger. He's fighting the fire. And while he's fighting the fire, a wolf comes out of the flames carrying a wolf cub, deposits the wolf cub in a safe area, goes back into the flames three more times and deposits four wolf cubs in this safe area and then goes back in the flames and never sees him again. After the fire, the Ranger goes to where he saw the cubs. They're still there. He takes them, takes them home, and he's going to bring them to some sort of shelter. But overnight, they transform from being wolf cubs. Now they're in a human environment. They transform into human infants. And he decides to adopt them and raise them as his own. So the whole idea behind the series was these teenagers would have all the kinds of problems that teenagers have, plus they're werewolves. So they've got that extra burden, a secret that they need to hide, 
umbility, they can't divulge, you know, all of those things. But it was basically, they have all the problems of teenagers plus their werewolves. What was the, this is the old, where do you get your ideas? And it applies to everything you write, but what was the inspiration specifically for, for uh, Wolfpack? And how does that relate to how you generally come up with story ideas? Well, when I was writing full-time, I was an idea machine, right? Uh, because you have to be. You need things all the time. I would have uh, a notebook by my bed because you wake up in the middle of the night after you've had this weird dream or something, and you, you sometimes you say to yourself, oh, I'll remember in the morning. And you wake up in the morning, you can't remember a thing. So you have to write something down and jog your memory and remind you. And I would have a notebook with all these ideas in it. I'd find them from everywhere. And the way uh, Wolfpack came about, first of all, I was editing two anthologies for young adults. One was called Be Afraid. The other one was, uh, the second one was called Be Very Afraid. And that was on the assistance of my <coughs> wife, who at the time was a uh, children's librarian. She said, you should really uh, write for young readers. So I did. Uh, for the two anthologies, I wrote a story for each of them. And I enjoyed that, and it was quite the challenge. And then, I'm not sure the genesis of the Wolfpack series, something to do with the fire and the idea of someone raising uh, werewolves from cubs, you know, keeping their secret. So in, in my books, the threats to the pack always come from the human world, government, uh, townspeople, you know, um, school bullies, those kind of things. And, you know, I just thought it was an interesting scenario. And obviously, um, Jeff Davis agreed. He's the creator of the Wolfpack TV show. He agreed because at the core is a forest ranger who adopts two in the TV series instead of four in my books, um, wolf cubs that turn out to be werewolves in their teenage years. So that was the genesis. I just had this vision of this fire and the wolf coming out and, and that sort of thing. And as a matter of fact, that's how I sold it to the editor, Kathy Lounger at the time. I was on the phone with her. I said, okay, picture this. And I explained the whole thing. And she says, oh, that sounds great. Write up a proposal for me and send it to me. And I did. And, uh, you know, it went from there. Uh, are you using traditional werewolf lore? Like, is, is it only full moon changes or are they more able to control it or... The moon in my where a wolf pack is non is a non-factor. Um, my werewolves can change at will, and as a matter of fact, after the fire, the the first book in the series opens up proper with the four of them in the forest practicing their changing abilities. Like they're holding up an arm and they're saying, "Okay, watch this," and they will just try and change just an arm or something like that and having learnt to learn control over it. And uh, so that's a little bit different. Um, <laughs> they are just as comfortable as uh, wolf and human and they can go from full human to full wolf with a couple of stages in between, you know, more human than wolf and more wolf than human, that sort of thing. So I don't think it's traditional. Plus, um, they don't get angry and, you know, become, they don't go into beast mode. As a matter of fact, in the first book, they had to uh, fight the villain 
who would have loved to be, you know, wounded by them and then heal and become a werewolf himself. He would have loved that. So they had to figure out a way how to destroy him, but not turn him into a, a wolf. So it took me three weeks to figure out that, oh, they're in the forest. Why don't they just bring, uh, pick up a branch, a hefty branch, and, and beat the shit out of him? And that's what they did. But it took me three weeks. You know, you think about inspiration, and sometimes you got to work these things out, and it just takes that much time. Well, what, what kind to, of... Sorry. To, just to think of something so simple that you're just reading it and say, of course he did. they did that. But sometimes the obstacles as the author to those kind of realizations are, are monumental. And it took three weeks for me to figure out, why don't I just do that? Which kind of ties into the next question, which is what does your planning outlining process look like when you're working on a novel? Do you do a detailed synopsis or plan ahead of time, or do you discover it more as you write? No, absolutely. I, uh, I am outlining completely. When I propose a novel, I have the entire story laid out. It'll, I'll do an 11-, 12-page proposal with each stage of the story, sometimes even you know key scenes. But that's the way I always wanted to do it. Like I will still come across things and invent things or discover things along the way. But I need to know how this is going to end because I need to sow the seeds along the way and put that little gem on chapter two because in chapter 25, it's going to come back and people go, oh, yeah. And, you know, you can't come up with the thing at the end if you haven't put it in the, the book originally. And I always, going back to, to make a re reparation or repair something and put something in so it sets up the end, never seems to work as smoothly as if you do it from the beginning and it's, you know, fluid as you're writing it and then you get to the end. So very, very important that I would outline complete novel before I even began. And then, you know, I'm, I'm watching like, oh, I've got to be at this point in the outline, I need to be at so many thousand words. And I always was working that way as, as well, making sure that when I got to the end, it was going to fulfill every aspect of the contract and what was the, all the requirements. How long would your outline be? Well, like I said, for a full novel, it could be like 11, 12, 20 pages. You know, you, and you could read that outline and feel like you've read the novel. I mean, that's how detailed it was. I didn't like any uh, surprises, and I didn't want to be stuck anywhere. Like, oh, what do I do now? Um, I know some authors do that. Uh, one of the famous examples was, I think, Dashiell Hammett said, um, whenever he got stuck, you always just had someone come into the room with a gun. And <laughs> that's good if you're in that genre. But that wasn't working for me. But um, I always wanted to know where it was going and uh, be able to set up and, you know, figure out what's the best way to convey this uh, scene or what's the best scene to write to convey, convey this idea. So always, always, even short stories I would outline. For, you know, a 5,000-word short story, I would have an outline of two, three pages. So um, I'm a big advocate of that. What does your actual writing 
process look like? Are you a fast rider, a slow rider? Do you like to work, you know, in an office or out somewhere in a coffee shop? And how do you like to work? Uh, I, I'm not in a coffee shop thing. <laughs> I think that's pretentious. I had an office. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I might be insulting you if you, if you do it that way. But I just think, you know, I don't need to be I just do it to get out of my that. office. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. But I never saw myself as a literary writer or somebody who was creating art. I always saw myself as a professional fiction writer. And the thing I did was uh, when I was working full time, nine o'clock, I was in my office starting and uh, five o'clock I would finish. Um, Unless there was something pressing, though I like to keep those business hours because I didn't want to burn out and I wanted to be a, a pro. And, you know, you sit down, you start writing, and then when time comes, take your break or end for the day. I always uh, did it that way. It seemed to suit me. And, um, uh, yeah. How long, how long would it take you to write the first draft of a novel then? Well, it's an interesting uh, question because people ask this all the time, and I always answer, the first thing I say is, well, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> now, my first, which, you know, it varies. The first novel I did, Wormwolf, now that was a gaming tie-in. I started writing. I had a, enough time, but as I was writing it, they said, oh, somebody dropped the ball who was going to publish a book in the series before you. Can you have it ready for us sooner? So I think I had to have it ready in six weeks or seven weeks or something like that. So I was writing all day long. I'd have supper and then I'd go back up and write a few more hundred words or a thousand words and get it done as quickly as possible. And when I had something like Lord Soth or even the Deathlands books, they needed to be 90,000 words. So my whole thing was, okay, I'm doing a thousand words a day for 90 days and uh, when we get to the end, then we'll go through it and improve it or expand or, you know, whatever. But the whole thing was to produce on a regular, consistent basis because, you know, when you're a professional writer and that's how you're making your living, nobody cares if you're not inspired. Nobody cares mm -hmm. if you don't feel like it today. Nobody cares about any of that stuff. All they care about is when you're finished and how, what you produced. Uh, when I was teaching, I did a lot of teaching of uh, writing. You know, a uh, student would say, oh, I worked so hard on this. I worked so long, you know. I, I, and I said, I don't care. Nobody cares. Nobody cares how much time you spent writing it. I don't care if you wrote it five minutes before class. What matters is how good it is and, you know, the reaction people have to it. No one's going to say, well, for a story that took so long, this is great or bad or, for you know. So the thing was to write, write well, write quickly. And when you're done, you know, hopefully there's not too much change is needed because as a professional and you're making your living, you got to move on to the next project and get, to get work on that. So I was always very motivated to create the words first. Like you have to do about 1,500 words a day, get those words done, then you check your email and then you work on some promotional thing or you set up an interview or 
you know, those kind of things. But the, the first thing that comes is write the words. Once you had those words written, the first draft, um, what does your revision process typically look like? Well, I wasn't big on revision, I must say. Get to the end, read it through once, and then hand it off to people that whose opinion you trust. One of the reasons I stopped going to the uh, Cecil Street group was there were some people who were giving opinions there were just useless. And I knew that, and I wasn't going to sit there for them to say, you know, stupid things about stories I'd written. But, so I ended up uh, cutting them out and just giving them to people whose opinions I trusted. And I did the same with the novels. Then I'd have, you know, two or three people, call them beta testers. They would come back with their notes. And then you either took uh, their um, suggestions or not. You didn't have to all the time. Because you're in control. You're the one whose name is on the cover. You're the one handing it in. You get to make the decisions. So, And then you get to say, I don't think that's right, and make that decision. But So it was finish it, read it through, hand it out, get it back, modify it, and make sure it's good. Maybe read it one more time, make sure... Not too many uh, typos and embarrassing things, and then send it off, move on to the next. And going back to uh, Wolfpack, it was uh, obviously successful with young readers. Was was that the first thing you had written for young readers? I think you said it was. Um, well, I'd done the two short stories first right. in the books that I edited. And the first book, Be Afraid, was... Um, Canadian Library Association uh, Book of the Year finalist for uh, young readers. Didn't win. Uh, I have no, no knowledge about the process after that. It was a finalist. And then we did uh, Be Very Afraid. And I always tell this joke. I was going to do a third book. It was going to be called Shit Your Pants, <laughs> but the publisher decided not to go with that. So I decided to write a novel instead. Um, yeah, so... The first novel, Wolfpack, first won the Aurora Award, which in the long-form English category, which is amazing because it's a book for young readers. And I always say this, which is also amazing because I won it in the era of Rob Sawyer, <laughs> who had a sort of lock on all the Aurora Award things in that time. Hey, when I won mine a few years later, uh, Rob Sawyer gave me a kiss. So there you go. Oh. <laughs> Well, he's a very good friend of mine. I don't think I've ever kissed him, but I'll have to ask him about that. Um, so it won that first, and then it was uh, put on the list for the Silver Birch. And uh, I know you're you're based in uh, Central Canada, so you're not aware of what that is. So oh, I've heard of it, yeah. I'm in Saskatchewan, uh, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, the Ontario Library Association has these Forest of Reading Awards, and what they do is they... In each category, they'll take 10 books and put them on the finals list. And then the school-aged children, they read. They have to read a certain number of books out of the 10, maybe five or six. Then they get to vote on which one's their favorite. And Wolfpack that year was overwhelming winner in the uh, Silver Birch category. But the better part of this is to be a finalist on the list, you have to have at least 5,000 copies in print. So as soon as it made the final uh, list, uh, 
went into a second printing. And then over the course of the year, it went into, I think, two more printings and eventually did 10,000 copies. It was the best-selling co- book for Tundra Books uh, that year. I was going to say, that's definitely that a, a Canadian bestseller, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, you don't even think of that, but uh, that made a big difference because the other books in the series, they did about 1,000 copies each, which, you know, is not even close. And even that year, being on the Silver Birch uh, list, I must have visited uh, 25, 30 uh, schools and it w- which was helpful because when i started out i was doing you know uh, visiting schools as a favor to people and then i realized you know this is crazy i have to start charging for this and i did and uh, that was a very good year but uh, so and then it did win the silver birch award which was great and the best part about that was they had the award ceremony down by the lake in a sta- in a an arena, outdoor arena, like right on the lakeshore, Lake Ontario. And they had all the finalist authors there. And they bust in like 3,000 kids from all the schools, you know, and they were all in the stand, in the seats. And then they introduce you and I came out and all the kids had copies of Wolfpack, my book, like waving it around in the air and screaming, screaming. And I swear, First time in my life I ever felt like a rock star. It was just amazing. I think this is amazing. You know, it's never going to happen again. But wow, you know, this moment I got this, got to enjoy it, and uh, I ended up winning, which is uh, you know great. Well, is that so, one of the? I mean, you've written for both adults and young adults. What's what's the difference in the way you approach those stories, and what are the rewards of writing for young people? I think you just mentioned one. <laughs> um. You know, I don't know if I could explain what's the difference or how you do it. I just knew I was writing for a younger audience. I didn't dumb it down, but I didn't, um, it's hard hard to explain. I, I didn't, I was straightforward as I usually am. I didn't dumb it down. I gave a clear, um, problem that needed to be solved, you know, and um, I treated treated the subject matter with respect. And I think all of that played into it that uh, the kids uh, found it exciting. Um, it's what, uh, you know, as opposed to writing for adults, you know, like when I did the gaming novel uh, Wormwolf, I had it experience writing erotica and everything and at some point in the book i said you know what i'm just going to write a three-page sex scene with these werewolves and i did like <laughs> uh but there's no such uh loose and fast freewheeling with uh, the young adult books they had to be structured and you know clear what was going on no self-indulgence no anything like that and um, generally no three-page sex scenes either no, no, as tempting as it was, no. Um, but, um, you know, you know, it's years, I'm sure in 2005, I would have had a very good answer. You know, 16 years later, yeah, how did I do that? I don't know. I just wrote, I, I wrote the kind of book that I would like to read if I yeah. was that age. I mean, that's always important, right? Yeah. You write it the way you wanted and you write a book that you would have found exciting at that age. And I did on that, that, and I did all of those things that, you know, I would like to read 
and it turned out to be the right thing. It was even when I was editing the books for young adults, Be Afraid and Be Very Afraid, I wrote stories that I would I wanted to read, like not even just as a teenager, but as somebody older. And respecting the problems that teenagers have and, and those kind of things. And it all just worked out. You know, I had really no experience editing a young adult book or writing a young, young adult story, but I did the things that I thought were right, that I would like to read if I were that age. And it turned out to be a success across the board. My short story was well-received. The book was well-received. Well I managed to do a, a follow-up and then onto a series of young adult novels. So um, just follow your gut, follow your instinct, you know. Yeah, I write for both. My most recent Aurora nomination is for young adult literature, and I don't really change anything in the way I write between one and the other, except that the characters are typically younger. And even then, I had one that was shortlisted for a young adult, or long-listed for the Sunburst Award for Young Adult, and the character's 27 years old. But this isn't a young adult book, but something about my writing... I don't know. Write what you write. That's just the, what I write. So, Yes. Um, so tell me about how Wolfpack got uh, this uh, new attention uh, to be turned into a series. Okay, so the books were out of print by 2010. And so it's an, like another 10, 12 years have gone by, and we've forgotten all about that. And... I'm sitting at the kitchen table, uh, my wife's making dinner, I get an email from my agent saying, oh, somebody's interested in the television rights to Wolfpack. And I'm like shrugging, I'm like, okay, that sounds great. Because we've had interest in even option things before and nothing came of it. And I just thought, you know, this is the same thing's going to happen. And, um, but it, it didn't. They, they followed through with it, and uh, we ended up negotiating uh, an option, an option being giving them 18 months to work on the project. And if nothing happens, then they have to extend the option or the rights revert back to me. But within a year, there was like, no, it's a full, uh, they're going to do it. And they're like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And then, like, uh, at the end of the year, like, was in a year's time, there was this teaser trailer that came out. They were making a Teen Wolf movie based on the TV series. They were reviving it with a TV movie. And they were going to do the Wolfpack series. And this teaser trailer said, based on the acclaimed novels, Beto Van Belkham. And I thought, holy cow, I can't <laughs> believe it. I watched that teaser trailer for three hours continuously. My name's still there. It's still there. I can't believe it. So it was really going to happen. And I thought, these guys are crazy. The book's out of print. You know, you can't even buy it anymore. It's the acclaimed series. The first book, sure, it was acclaim, uh, won some awards, but the rest of the series. But, you know, this is Hollywood talking. And I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. And then um, six months after that, they started filming. And six months after that, they'd finished in, like, in another couple of months, we, my wife and I were in uh, Los Angeles for the premiere. It was crazy. It was like light speed. What I learned later on, and out to, to go back to the when Wolfpack was originally published, there was two people interested in the film rights to it. One guy had been an associate producer on the 
Survivor television series. So, okay, he was working in the industry. He's got some juice. The other one said they had a development deal with Paramount Pictures. Never heard anything from those people again. Fast forward 16 years or how many years it is, and it's coming out from Paramount. And what happened was an executive at Paramount went to Jeff Davis, who had done the Teen Wolf series, also did Criminal Minds. People might have heard of that one. And they gave him the book and said, will you be interested in doing this? And he said, oh, I don't want to do werewolves again. I just did 100 episodes of Teen Wolf. But he read the book and said, yeah, I can do something with this. And he was interested in doing it. Now, Paramount didn't have the rights to it. So they, that's when they contacted me, when they'd already established with Jeff Davis that he was going to do the series. I didn't know that at the time. If I had, maybe there would have been some leverage. But... I just thought they were crazy, that they were interested in this book series that had been out of print for so many years. So that's why it went so quickly, like light speed. Like he had an agreement with Paramount to do the series, and then they had to come to me to make sure that he could go ahead with it. So very unlikely uh, series of events. I say, I used to say, I uh, felt like I had been struck by lightning and won the lottery all in the same day. <laughs> which in in essence is what happened. But then family and friends convinced me, no, no, you know, you had something to do with it. You did a good book and, and it paid off in the end. People noticed. And I was able to take solace in that. Yeah, I did ha have something to do with it. I did a good book. They could have picked any book out there, but they picked mine. So the benefit has been we've reprinted the first book, Wolfpack, and that's available in print form. All four books are available in ebook format. All four books are available in audiobook format, read by Alan Carlson, a Canadian actor, and uh, he's from BC, which is perfect because that's where the books are set. And there's also been a an edition arranged for the Czech Republic, and there's been offers. We're still waiting for the contracts on Italy. And Saudi Arabia of all places, which is amazing. Hmm. What What was your reaction when you actually saw the adaptation? Well, it's uh, it's bittersweet because on the one hand you're you're there, and first of all, no one cares that you're the author of the book. <laughs> when we went to Los Angeles, no one cares. No one gives a shit, really. And it was all, I spent the whole night, I'm the author of the book. Oh, nice to meet you. But um, it's funny that the premiere, all the, it was a full theater, and all the actors and crew, they've invited friends and family and everything. So every time some actor's name appears on screen, there's a big cheer that rises up from one part of the theater. And then my name comes on screen in the opening credits, based on a novel by Edo Van Belkin. My wife and I are at the back, on the back row, very back row. Yay! And people are looking like, who the hell are these guys? Because <laughs> no one else, you know, acknowledged that on the screen. So it was interesting, a very interesting thing. I had a blast. But you have to understand, I tell people my novel is the inspiration for. It's not the guidebook. You're not going to read each book saying what's going to happen in season two. There might be things in the up if there is a season two and upcoming seasons 
that they will draw from it. Because there's a lot of uh, side uh, plots and things, storylines that they can extract and use. And watching it, you're hoping, oh, when is something that I wrote going to be on screen? And it was disappointing at first that it wasn't, because even, you know, the character of Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy, she's a star in the series. I did not put that character in my book. She's not in the book. So we can't put a cover of her on, on the cover, you know, to reissue the, the series, because she's not even in the book. But anyway, I got all over, over all that, and I understand Jeff Davis is a fantastic television writer. He knows what he's doing. He used it as inspiration. He recognized that inspiration with the credit, you know. He's included me in uh, set visits and uh, the premiere, which is fantastic. And if there's a season two, which I'm, I'm hopeful, he's insisting that I get a cameo, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm you know, looking forward to. I'm, in fact, I hope I get killed. So I go there one day and I have my little thing and then I get to come back the next day and get makeup all done up like I'm dead. So mm-hmm. it'll be a lot of fun. And to be honest, this uh, past year and a half with this TV series, some of the most fun I've ever had as a writer. So I can't complain in the least about how it's gone. Well, that brings me to, we're a little over an hour, but nobody cares except me because I'm the host, so I don't care. Um, we're, um, But we are getting close to the end, so I'm going to get my, my three big philosophical questions. That kind of leads into it. Why do you write? Why do you why sure. do you do this? And the other one is why do any of us do it? Why do we tell stories? And then finally, why stories, fantasy, horror specifically? So, run with that. Um, why do I write? I think when I was a kid, I recognized what was good stories and what were not. Like I would watch TV and say, "Oh, that's bullshit." I remember watching the Six Million Dollar Man pilot episode. Some of your older readers might, uh, listeners might remember well, that. I certainly do. And, and, you know, Steve Austin was trying to, having trouble coming to terms with who he'd become. And he saves this child from under a car or something. And he's feeling great about his new abilities and look what he can do with it. But in the process of saving this child, his arm gets torn open and there's wires coming out and the child's mother's screaming at him, what are you? And it's like such a letdown. And I'm thinking, that's good story writing, right? That's the thing I wanted to emulate. Um, Another example, my mother very seldomly bought records, but she did buy Tom Jones' album that had the song Delilah on it. And I listened to that song over and over again. And there was a line at the end. He says, she stood there laughing at him in the doorway. And the line is, I felt the knife in my hand and she laughed no more. And even as a, like a 12-year-old, I thought, that's really cool. That's really cool. That's really good writing. I like that. And that's the kind of thing that I wanted to emulate. And I always like to tell stories. And I found that even when I was telling verbal stories to people, I did it in a way somehow to capture their imagination and their attention. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. I mean, I love doing this stuff. And so I pursued it. Um, And we talked about why the horror genre. Yeah. Because found out that, you know, 
present day setting with just a little bit of fantasy or speculation. You know, Charles DeLint, they call him um, urban fantasy. I guess you could call it urban horror, but just set in the present day. We all know all the parameters of it, but let's throw in something on the side, like they're teenage werewolves. They have all the problems of teenagers, but they're werewolves too, and they've got that extra problem. So that's how I, I settled on that. And then why do we do it as a species, if you like? Why do we, why do we make up things that never happened and pretend that they did? Well, as a species, if I was, you know, 400 years ago and a member of some tribe, I would be the guy entertaining at night, telling a story. Maybe they were traditional stories. Maybe I would be making up stories. Maybe, you know, in uh, medieval England, I would be some kind of court jester or some kind of entertainer or some kind of scribe recording things and, and dramatizing things. I don't know. But I think something inherent, I don't know what it is, whether it's a gene or just a human nature, something inside me needs to tell these kind of stories and to tell them as best as I can. And some of the pleasure you get out is when you, you know, do something well and somebody is amazed or awestruck. That's the satisfaction you get. That satisfaction that I had reading a Ray Bradbury story, getting to the end and saying, oh, that was fantastic. That's what I wanted to impart on somebody else. And you could argue one way or another, but I think the majority of times I managed to achieve that. And are you working on anything right now? Um, well, I'm working on uh, social media. <clears throat> I'm trying to figure it out. I'm not very good at it because I'm 61 years old now and mm. it's passed me by, but I'm trying and learning and I'm doing videos uh, called Wolfpack Facts. You can find them on YouTube. If you go to YouTube, there's a bunch of um, material there related to the Wolfpack TV series and the book. And it's been great because my son works in television and, you know, I'll do the, the main stuff and we'll work together and put, put things in together and he'll work on the images and things. And it's great working with, you know, your son on something like that. He's happy to do it. I'm happy to have him help me. And, but the disappointing thing is, you know, you do this and you, you're struggling to get 200 views. And then somebody's watching an episode of the show and they're fawning over the fact that Sarah Michelle Geller's on there and go, oh, my God, it's Buffy. And then they get 5,000 views. And I don't understand it. I don't understand social media. I'm doing content related directly to the show. It's coming from the author of the book. It has good produ production value. And I can't manage 200 views. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying again when season two gets announced. But uh, for the most part, I'm still trying to figure out social media and working on that. And having said that, I do hope that uh, we can put out a new story collection at some point in the next couple of years, year or two. And you mentioned social media. Where are some of the places people can find you online? Well, Facebook uh, is one. Just type my name in. I've been recounting all of the books, the history and special stories of each of the books. Uh, Instagram, I post on Instagram, a lot to do with Wolfpack, but also my books. Uh, Twitter as well, 
although that one's falling a little behind the rest as my favorite one. I've also put some stuff on TikTok and uh, I think of anything else. YouTube, yeah, the YouTube channel, which is hilarious because it's got not only stuff about Wolfpack, but it's got stuff from my days as hosting uh, horror movies on Scream TV and doing uh, Halloween bumpers that went between Saturday morning cartoons for Fox 29 back in the day. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun stuff there. If you're intrigued by this podcast and you want to hear more, just find out more. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, value added, I might say, on YouTube and other social media. And like I say, if you can't find me, you're not looking hard enough because I'm everywhere and I use my own name. So it's not it's not a secret. Well, and I'll have links uh, on the website for when this goes live as well. So cool, make that'd it really be great. Easy for Thank people. you. Well, thanks so much for being on uh, the World Shapers Edo. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Yeah, um, it's been a blast. Uh, that time has gone really quickly. And uh, thanks again to Edo for being my guest. Uh, another wonderful conversation. At least I thought it was. I hope you did as well. That wraps up this episode of The World Shapers. I will remind you once again that you can find The World Shapers online at theworldshapers.com, on Facebook at The World Shapers, on Twitter, oh, sorry, on X at The World Shapers, and on uh, Instagram. I'm not on Instagram at The World Shapers, but uh, those are the other places you can find it. You can find uh, me online at uh, edwardwillett.com to tease on Willett. You can find me on Instagram at edwardwillettauthor. You can find me on Facebook at edward.willett. You can find me on X as eWillett. And you can find me, uh, what did I forget, on YouTube at uh, edwardwillett, where uh, you can walk along with me as I walk around uh, my home city of Regina, Saskatchewan. Shadowpaw Press you can find online at shadowpawpress.com, on X at shadowpawpress on Instagram at Shadowpaw Press and on Facebook at Shadowpaw Press. And uh, those are the main ones, I guess. <laughs> so uh, please do uh, come back many times in the future as I continue to talk to the authors who have crafted the stories of science fiction and fantasy we've enjoyed so much. Uh, check out the anthologies, Shapers of Worlds, Shapers of Worlds Volume 2, and Shapers of Worlds Volume 3, featuring short fiction by authors who have been guests on this podcast. And watch for Shapers of Worlds Volume 4 coming along in January. And uh, next guest will be Hayden Trenholm, another Canadian author. We'll be up in a couple of weeks from now. So uh, uh, come back for that. And MJ Kuhn, I think, is the one right after that. But that's it for this time. Thanks again for listening to The World Shapers. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.